Welcome to this extra special supersized episode of Close Talking. As always, I am Jack Roster Munley, and I'm joined by my estimable co-host, Connor McNamara Stratton. This week, for our extra special episode on a portion of William Shakespeare, we have a special guest, Molly Booth, a Disney Hyperion author who writes young adult fiction based on Shakespeare's works. Together, the three of us dig into a passage of Molly's choosing from Antony and Cleopatra. The normal format of closed talking is that we read a poem, talk about it for 20 to 30 minutes, and then we read the poem again. This week, partially because we had Molly, who is just a ton of fun on the show, and because Shakespeare is such a big subject, the podcast runs a little bit longer. If you want to jump right into the meat of our conversation about the Antony and Cleopatra passage, skip ahead about 25 minutes. But if you want high-grade Shakespeare banter and a whole lot of context for the conversation, definitely stick around for the next little bit, where we talk about some of our favorite Shakespeare adaptations, favorite lines from Shakespeare, and we take Shakespeare character quiz, the link to which you can find in the show notes. As always, you can subscribe to Close Talking on the iTunes Store, and you can find us on Stitcher and SoundCloud. And we encourage you to connect with us either on Facebook, where we are at facebook.com slash close talking, or on Twitter, twitter.com slash close talking, also at close talking. Enjoy the show. This is going to be a super SFW podcast, by the way. <laughs> I feel like out of respect for the fact that you're a YA author, we should make this uh, an SFW podcast just because I would like, you know, people who are inspired by your books to be able to enjoy it. And like maybe some of our other podcasts are less. And teens do not swear. So that's that's a good point. If I learned anything in high school, which still up for debate, uh, it is that teens do not swear. Never. <laughs> And they definitely don't invent swear words to make everybody who's not a teen feel left out. No, no, that's not. And and it, and it doesn't make YA authors feel really paranoid that they're not in their lingo either. That's like not a thing. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> right, I actually go we... to my fourteen-year-old uh, sister sometimes. I'm like, what are people saying? Can you tell me? It gets real weird. <laughs> no, that's great that you have an on-the-ground resource because I would I just be like, so I remember Kesha. <laughs> that's something that I definitely associate with youth. Yeah. It's, it's Do true. you know who she is? And they're like, who? Like she hasn't reported for years. <laughs> I TikTok. Yeah. Oh my god, I know. I have to be real careful my references aren't dated. It's it's really Yeah, crazy. that's that's hard. I would just say was uh like everywhere. I that's <laughs> so old. <laughs> Oh god, didn't The Office make a joke about that being old in like 2006? <laughs> Probably, that sounds accurate. That That's means it's coming so back now. That was old like during AIM, during the AIM era. Yeah, that was... <laughs> Welcome to this all new episode of Close Talking. I am Jack Rossiter Munley, and as always with me is... Connor McNamara Stratton. And our special guest today is Molly Booth. Molly, say a little something about yourself. Hello, my name is Molly Booth. I know these people from college. I also write books. 
Yeah, so Molly, why specifically were you called in to be on this episode of Close Talking? Uh, because I have a reputation of being a complete Shakespeare geek, and uh, that is because I write uh, young adult books that in some way incorporate Shakespeare, and uh, they are currently being published by Disney Hyperion. That is 100% why I asked if you would like to be on this podcast, because I really want to talk about Shakespeare. Connor and I have talked about how to work Shakespeare into the close talking experience for a while. And as a result of knowing you at all, when I think of Shakespeare, <laughs> I also think of you and your, uh, and your excellent books. I highly recommend you check out Molly's books, which we will talk about. Let's dive right in. Before we get to the passage that you picked, quick order of business before the podcast experience as a little, so Molly and I know each other from college, Molly and Connor had not previously met. And as a little get to know you, I thought we'd all take the uh, the Shakespeare qu character quiz that was rocketing around Facebook recently, just making the rounds. Um, all the hip kids were doing it. So <laughs> I will start because I think of the three of us, mine is the most glancingly accurate in the <laughs> broadest sense. Which is very uh, disturbing. <laughs> I, it's, it's like if the, the qualities turned up to 11 in like in a bad way. Um, and I don't know which of my answers led to this. <laughs> I'm so um, excited. So I got Macbeth. <laughs> which might be because mm. in the question about favorite vacation, I said kill everyone in my castle. Oh, yeah. Time. Uh, no, I think I may have said staycation, which I guess is like Oh, I said worst. staycation. Yeah, see, there you go. But you did not <laughs> so you want to come out. Stay in, in Scotland. Oh no, I said Paris. Oh yeah. What does the Macbeth thing say about you then? Like, what's your description? Right. So there's some positive aspects, which is part of why I don't totally disagree. Uh, like you're a strong, powerful, charismatic personality. Which, like, fine quiz. I'll take it. Um, <laughs> there's others that are less accurate. Like. Uh, people do what you say or get the heck out of your way. I don't think I'm quite there. Um, three quarters. Know, that, that seems fairly accurate. You were like the RA of half of my dorm, and you were a tyrant. So <laughs> that's true. I did rule with an iron fist. <laughs> no, well, I also didn't like kill three other people to become the RA. So I feel like that's where it really no, falls no, that's apart. what I was gonna say. Like you really didn't, you know, use the traditional Macbeth ascension to power narrative. So no. I don't know what the Shakespeare analog would be. There's not a lot of people who just sort of go in for an interview and then get a job. Yeah. Oh, um, actually, Helen from All's Well That Ends Well, she's like, hello, I know how to cure the king. And they're like, great, come cure the king. Boom, should have been Helen. <laughs> oh my God. That's how I get all my jobs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so yeah, I got Macbeth. And there's like a lot of, I, it's a pretty decently pleasant, or I guess like, generally thought to be positive character attributes, so I'm not going to totally disavow it. And I think there are elements that are true, but all in all, it doesn't it doesn't fit quite the way I'd like. Uh, the biggest one that connects with me is three-course meals and fancy cocktails aren't for you, um, which is true. I'm fine with simple fare and I don't drink, so boom, totally <laughs> Macbeth. That was, if I remember correctly in the play, his defining characteristic is that he doesn't eat a lot and he doesn't drink a lot. I think if you ask anyone what do they know about Macbeth, it's not like he and his wife got up to some shenanigans. It's like, yeah, not a big eater. 
yeah. I mean, in, in my scholarly opinion, yes, absolutely. I would agree with that. I'm stamped. Very flattered to have that confirmed. <laughs> um, so Molly, as the Shakespeare scholar, what was your result on this quiz and how do you feel about it? I am really upset. And I actually took this quiz like two weeks ago because of course <laughs> I was aware of it because I'm such a nerd. Um, and I took this course two weeks ago and I got this same result. And then I took it again and I got the same result. And I was like, you know what, whatever. I'll take this again um, for this podcast and I'll get a better result. And I took it like 10 times in the 10 minutes leading up to this podcast recording. And <laughs> I, I have to say as a note, I also took this quiz several weeks ago and I was also Macbeth then. Yeah. So at least it's consistent. It, it, at least it is consistent. So I get two answers because once I never took the quiz saying female because that means you're two characters in Shakespeare. Um, so I took it once saying doesn't matter and once saying male. And the first time I took it, I got uh, Luciana from the Comedy of Errors, who is like the character that says to the other character, like, stop talking. You're a wife. Shut up. <laughs> Oh my god. That's just like the opposite of me in every way. Um, so then <laughs> I took it again with a male character and I got Lucentio, uh, Lucencio? Yes, Lucencio from, from um, Taming of the Shrew, which is my least favorite play of all time. And uh, it's the same description. So I'm going to go with Lucencio because he's like a little better. But um, <laughs> it says that I'm a textbook idealist, which I suppose is true. And it says I have a lot of optimism, which I suppose is true. And it says when I fall in love, it's head over heels, which I don't think is true. And then it says uh, you can be sneaky and crafty when you go after what you want. And I'm just not like, I'm not sneaky. I'm so bad at being sneaky. I'm super clumsy and loud. So I laughed really hard when I read that. that. That is an amazing character description because I feel like it's basically taking the best parts of Leslie Nope and like the worst parts of Frank Underwood and putting them in one compact character description. <laughs> I would agree with that. That's, that's so like, real. Like I do, I do relate good. to the idealism and like being a little sensitive, um, I suppose. But in terms of like crafty and sneaky, I'm like, oh, I can't even play chess. Like I'm horrible <laughs> at chess. Like how could this be me? But I, I, the thing is I took it a bunch of times and the three, the two things, I didn't change because it would be a lie. The DVR question, that's like, what do you DVR? I had to answer The Bachelorette every time because I'm right. disgustingly into that franchise. And so I was like, well, it would be a lie if I picked anything else. <laughs> and then the other thing was that black turtleneck because I wouldn't wear anything but that black turtleneck. And so unfortunately, that just ended me up with this. Well, so, so if you want those, this bad, this, these, these bad characters, I guess don't choose the black turtleneck and the bachelorette in combination. Which it's is like better. a real moody bachelorette watching. Yeah. I guess. I, guess <laughs> I don't know what. Well, Whatever. <laughs> with the turtleneck, that's where the sneakiness comes from, because that's probably a tactical turtleneck for like undercover spy work. Oh, that's a really good point. And I guess The Bachelorette is like idealist because you like some people watch that thinking it's actual love, whereas I just like to study feminism and racism and narcissism through this medium. So. Right. That could also be where the head yeah. over heels thing comes from. <laughs> All right. So, Connor, what did Connor get? Oh, oh my God. God. Well, I got Laertes, um, which is awesome. not, not a bad character, but the description is, I think, just very far off. 
you can be hot-headed and impatient. I feel like I have the coolest head of all time. That's pretty fair. Um, people love to hang out with me. That's incredibly Lies. true. No, okay. No. <laughs> As objectively the coolest dude around with like a rockin' hairdo right now, I think everybody wants a piece of Connor. Okay. Uh, this is all libel. Um, and then live and athletic. Oh, God. Definitely um, live. No. Uh, and then willing to visit weird and scary corners of the world. Frog legs, anyone? What the hell does that have to do with Laertes? He just goes to, I like, France, right? I don't know. Where's I think I it's because I answered the France thing. <laughs> but he was not going to France to, to walk along the cobblestones. So, There's I don't your... know. I'm, I'm happy to be Laertes, no. but not... I mean, I'm just trying to hang out and sit, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Which, which Shakespeare uh, character would that be? Who does the most sitting? Uh, oh, that's a good Paul question. Staff? Oh. Just always at a pub. Always that's sitting true. at a pub. I would love to be Falstaff. Yeah. Just hanging at the pub. I'm going to make another quiz for myself because um, I, I just need a better result and, and I, I can't get it with this one. So I'm just going to make one. Hold on. Hold on. Sorry. I just realized that if I'm Lou Chancio, that means I am Joseph Gordon-Levitt in 10 Things I Hate About You. So I don't hate that. Ooh. Oh, that's real good. That's, that's fine. Okay. That's pretty right. nice. Get that's that JGL great. going. I'm more on board with this. Okay. <laughs> that, is, that is the most positive spin. So we've established that our characters don't necessarily match us exactly. But I think the fun we had along the way far outstrips the uh, the goal. Possibly honing in a little more. Uh, do what are your favorite plays or lines or adaptations of Shakespeare? Uh, well, my favorite um, adaptations are my own books. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you can't steal my answer, Molly. It's a plug. You've all been duped. That's a real good plug. No, no, no. Um, I was going to make it. You stole my thunder. Um, let's see. Well, uh, I guess recently, since I, I just directed a middle and high school production of Twelfth Night, so I've been on a real kick of watching Twelfth Night things. So uh, I really love the production with Mark Rylance that took place at the Globe that you can watch on the Globe's iPlayer. It's uh, traditional conditions, which I don't always love, but this one is amazing. Um, and then I also love She's the Man. I think it's like the best modernization of, of any Shakespeare play. <laughs> it's incredibly well done. Um, I really, really dug it. Uh, also, oh, also, oh, who wrote this book? I don't think I have the author's name on hand, but there's a wonderful YA adaptation, uh, a really creepy one uh, of Twelfth Night called Illyria. If I had the author's name in front of me, I would just say it, but it's like about cousins and they're kind of incestuous and they're in a production of Twelfth Night and it's great. Nice. Yeah. What do you got, Connor? Uh, wow. Okay. Well, one adaptation's got me thinking. I've always loved the play Good Night Desdemona, Good Morning Juliet, which is like uh, by Anne Marie MacDonald. And it's about like a literature professor who like plops herself randomly into uh, Othello and Romeo and Juliet. And it's like a great discovery of how, I don't know, they're like hilariously broken plays that could be fixed immediately. Um, 
I've always enjoyed that. And then I secretly love Cymbeline, which is Cymbeline. like a, Cymbeline. Ah, yes. Clearly, I don't love it. Cymbeline. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. A rose by any other name would smell as sweet, Connor. Oh my God, Jack! Very You've been true. waiting so long for this. <laughs> Cymbeline's so crazy, though. I love that play. Yeah, I've never actually read it, but I've seen two versions of it, and one of them was like totally playing up the contrivedness of everything because it was and it's just like such a late Shakespeare where he's just like okay I'm going through my motions lol um (laughs) and yeah yeah, but it's like so funny in that way but then there was also a Shakespeare in the park a couple years ago that did Cymbeline and it was like beautiful I thought it was going to be a a law fest and then I was tearing up at the end it's very surprising oh I know I mean not too much but you know enough <laughs> uh, right you're a man so yeah <laughs> yeah it's like I mean, real manly tears i'm working on the tears don't worry it's been a few few decades of trying to shake off that masculinity stuff it's hard to do there's this one part of romeo and juliet which i was trying to find but it's where maybe you can help me there's like juliet is saying she like puns on i like three different ways and she's like uh Oh my gosh, I need to pull this up. Jack, you go and then I'll find it. Okay, yeah. So I have a lot of different favorites. Um, unsurprising to probably everyone, I Shakespeare and I go way back. We're old pals. <laughs> An unconventional one that sticks out is the um, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech from Macbeth. But it shows up very briefly in uh, the Wishbone adaptation of The Time Machine. And That's so specific. It's so perfect. So like, you know, Wishbone is the time traveler with Weena and they're in the library with all the decaying manuscripts and he hops up with his little doggy paws onto the place where the manuscript is and he's reading it and he goes, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And then he puts his paw on the manuscript and the whole thing crumbles and he goes- I remember this. It's so, it's vividly etched into my memory. I memorized that whole like speech shortly thereafter because I was just completely transfixed by this moment in Wishbone because I don't think it's an accident. I mean, I I don't remember now well enough because I haven't read The Time Machine for a long time if that is a moment adapted from the book or if it's one that they just sort of put in there for Wishbone. But it's such a perfect marriage of Shakespeare, which is this elemental component of culture that just hasn't been preserved in the reality of the future that the time traveler goes to and that by trying to interact with it, he unintentionally destroys it. It's just so well-constructed and fascinating. And that's always stuck out to me, just as a as a use of Shakespeare in popular culture, that's just sort of unnecessarily awesome. Oh. In terms of actual Shakespeare stuff that I love, the uh, Ian Holm King Lear is one of my all-time favorites, possibly known to contemporary audiences as Bilbo Baggins. Uh, <laughs> because he definitely played him in the Lord of the Rings films. Uh, you know, The Fellowship of the Bard, The Two Bards, The Return of the Bard, all those films. So... <laughs> You're on a roll. I, Don't stop. Yeah. 
it's really easy. Just drop the bard in everywhere. No, the point is that his adaptation of King Lear is fantastic. And there was a filming of it done for Masterpiece Theater in like the late 90s, I guess. And the staging of it is all of this super stark, like basically empty rooms, plain tables, and everybody's dressed in just like black tunics and things. There's almost no staging to it. You're just in these spaces. And it puts the play itself so front and center. I have been transfixed by that since the very first time I saw it because you get so much focus on the actors and so much focus on what they're saying that it, like moments of it really stick out for the power of the play they're communicating more so than any of the, you know, like Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, you add the grandeur of the staging to the play, which is its own great thing. And I love that adaptation, but this one particularly has a sort of unique place for me. Um, yeah. And probably not by accident, some of my favorite lines from Shakespeare are from King Lear, and it's one of my favorites ever. I love uh, better that it has not been born than not to have pleased me better. Like, sick burn, man. That is yeah. cold. <laughs> That's super interesting. I actually haven't seen that version of King Lear, but what strikes me about that that's cool is it's like a stripping down that you would have seen stage-wise at the Globe because they don't have a lot of sets or anything like that, so it's like a modern version of that. That's pretty awesome. Totally. It's really cool. I highly recommend finding it. I'm sure at least parts of it are on YouTube and they're great. Um, but the casting of everybody in it is also so spot on famously. And they did it for the queen and it became sort of infamous as a little stir for a while because Lear is supposed to be nude in the storm scene and he actually performed it nude in front of the queen. So it was like, what? Uh, yeah. Cover your crumpets, ladies and gentlemen. He's going all in. <laughs> I believe that's a direct quote. That's one of my faves. Um, That's amazing. Nice. Yeah. Um, I found it. You found the, the eye pun? Yeah. Yes. So it's Juliet's like thinking that maybe Romeo is dead and she's asking the nurse. And then she's like, what devil art thou that dost torment me thus? Uh, la da da da. Hath Romeo slain himself, say thou but I, and that bare vowel I shall poison more than the death-darting eye of a cockatrice. I am not I, if there be such an eye, or those eyes shut that make the answer I. If he be slain, say I, or if not, no. Brief sounds determine of my weal or woe. And then the nurse is like, I saw the wound, I saw it with mine eyes, and then Juliet freaks out, because she's like, oh, you said I, like, yes. And she was just <laughs> saying, I saw a wound. And anyway, it's a great, there's like I as yes, I as the eyeball, and I as me. Uh, and they're all like just messing with each other. And That's when so I was in, good. it's so good. And I was so pissed because in New York, I got rush tickets to see Romeo and Juliet that had Orlando Bloom in it, which was a horrible decision. Uh, he came out on a motorcycle for one. They cut that part. I was so mad. Oh. I remember when that was happening, and I was like, that's the last production I would ever see. It was, it was weird. Am I the last? I'm so glad you saw it. He would just do, like, random clips that were, like, unnecessary little, like, I heard that Juliet was good, though. Juliet was so good. That was what was so sad, is because Juliet was amazing, and most everyone was amazing, but Romeo was just Orlando Bloom, like, being hot and like trying to be hot and like looking at the audience like 
oh yeah, you know I'm hot. Oh my god, that's horrifying. Did you, did you do like a little smolder? There was lots of smolders, yeah. That's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, and then and it was also rough because in the like playbill, Juliet was she the actress was black, and so they made all of Juliet's family black. And so then it was, there was that element to it. And then they interviewed Orlando Bloom and he was just like, I don't really think the race part's like that important for the production or whatever. They just, they just picked someone who like got a good vibe with me. <laughs> solid Orlando, real solid. So glad you put a lot of thought into this interpretation. Yeah. So. Although I'd like him to see, I'd like to see him play both Paris and Romeo as Legolas. That I would see, Now that is some crossover gold right there. Because yeah. <laughs> Legolas would just be like, hey, Capulets, back off. I'm an arrow god. <laughs> we have talked about all of our different favorite Shakespeare pieces, but we have not, in fact, even touched on the piece that we're about to talk about today, or even the play, particularly, that it is from, which is Antony and Cleopatra. So, Molly... Why don't you tell us why you selected this section and a little bit about what we're going to talk about before we dive right in? Sure. So um, I selected this um, part of Antony and Cleopatra because it is um, my favorite lines in all of Shakespeare. So I felt like I, I got re I really got into Shakespeare not until uh, my sophomore year of college. I randomly took a Shakespeare literature course at Bunker Hill Community College, which is where I was at at the time, and. Um, I love, we did Hamlet, we did King Lear, and we did Macbeth. And I was like, I'm digging all these plays, but where where are the women's? You know, where <laughs> where are the yeah. women? And so, but my professor was very aware of this. He was a pretty, he was a pretty woke professor. I love him, Professor Salisbury, shout out to you. And he gave us our last play. He gave us Antony and Cleopatra. And um, we came in and there was such a polarizing view of this character in, I'm going to use some words I don't like, but a lot of people thought she was like a slut. And they were like, she's such a whore. What a terrible character. She's the downfall of Antony. Like, she's such an awful villain. And I was like, wait a minute. I read this comp play completely differently. <laughs> I thought she was like a, a co-tragic hero. So, and that's what my professor thought too, but he like trolled everyone and just like let them talk about her terribly and was like, you're all wrong. It was awesome. <laughs> um, so that was a great introduction to this play. And then uh, the play really stayed with me because of this um, dual vision of her in criticism. It, it extends far, far, far back in all of her criticism history. So um, that's why I picked Cleopatra. And then these, this particular section is when Antony dies and it's a really... Oh, spoiler. Sorry, everyone. Anthony dies. <laughs> <laughs> Total spoiler. Cleopatra dies, too. What? Yeah, if your name is the title character, you're probably going to die. The, right. Um, like, even if you're just a named character in a Shakespeare tragedy, like, the clock's ticking, friend. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so what's, this is at the end of Act 4. Um, and it's scene 15, which you will note uh, because there are more scenes in Antony and Cleopatra than any other play in all of Shakespeare. So it's very fast paced. Lots of things are happening. There's a lot of war from a lot of different air angles. Um, but what's exciting about this is this scene ends Act 4, I believe, and it transitions into Act 5. And so Antony, this is why I think the argument that Cleopatra is not a tragic hero is so stupid because Antony dies. And then it's her act. She's, she's the hero of Act 5. And you follow her decision to kill herself, essentially. Let's hear it. Okay. Molly's going to read the passage. I will read the stage direction. Noblest of men, would die? Hast thou no care of me? 
Shall I abide in this dull world, which in thy absence is no better than a sty? Oh, see, my women. Mark Antony dies. The crown of the earth doth melt. My lord, oh, withered is the garland of the war. The soldier's pole is fallen. Young boys and girls are level now with men. The odds is gone, and there is nothing left remarkable beneath the visiting moon. No more, but even a woman, and commanded by such poor passion as the maid that milks and does the meanest chairs. It were for me to throw my scepter at the injurious gods to tell them that this world did equal theirs till they had stolen our jewel. All's but not. Patience is Scottish, and impatience does become a dog that's mad. Then is it sin to rush into the secret house of death ere death come to us? How do you women? What, what good cheer? How now, Charmian, my noble girls? Ah, women, women, look, our lamp is spent, it's out. Good sirs, take heart, we'll bury him, and then what's brave, what's noble, let's do it after the high Roman fashion, and make death proud to take us. Come away. This case of that huge spirit now is cold. Ah, women, women, come, we have no friend, but resolution and the briefest end. Pretty good stuff. Oh my gosh, yes. Got some notes. <laughs> oh, excellent. This is a really interesting passage, because basically, like, Mark Antony is dead, dies during it. Dies during it, yeah. I mean, you know, which is pretty intense. I mean, number one, too much of a ding-dong to get killing himself right the first time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. And he kills himself. He tries to kill himself in the Roman fashion, which is to, like, stab yourself and fall on your sword. And he does it incorrectly and doesn't quite die. So this is, in this passage, he's made his men drag him up to the monument where Cleopatra is. And what's amazing about this scene is they spend, before he dies, they spend most of it arguing over who gets to talk. They're like, no, 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 let me speak. No, let me speak. They're like, two narcissists trying to handle each other, like, dying, and it's amazing. <laughs> wow. I know you're going to die. Like, I'm going to let you finish. You're having a great death scene. But I just got to say this. I just got to say one thing. Literally, he's like, please, please let me talk. And she's like, no, 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 no. I have something more important to say that you need to hear before you die. And he's like, I'm the one dying. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really says a lot about their relationship throughout the play. It does. Absolutely. It's a perfect illustration. But anyway, his death and dying precipitates her little reflection on mortality and suicide as well. Because not for nothing, but the reason he tried to kill himself is because she told him that she had killed herself. <laughs> yes. Although I want to be fair to Cleopatra because she gets slammed on that a lot for that decision. He did just before when she told him that she was killing herself, it was because they were going to war and uh, against Caesar, um, Octavius Caesar. And uh, the uh. first time they w took their armada out, she got she got like all chicken and turned around and came back and he followed her. So he didn't need to follow her, but she did that and she got scared. And then she's like, I'm sorry, I got scared. And he's like, fine, we'll try again. <laughs> Smart Anthony. So also, they like, it's really interesting just <laughs> in the structure of the play that her leaving, like they, they talk about it a little bit in terms of why she left, but it's like the least motivated or like character consistent action in the whole play. And it's the one that's just drawn directly from history. It happened and no one knows why. 
Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the play, if you look at what she's building up to, like, she's not a general. She's a politician and a ruler. So it, I always figured she just got really terrified. She's about, like, she could die on right. a ship. So she turned around and she didn't think, she says, like, I, I didn't think you were going to follow me. Why'd you do that? <laughs> so that's awesome. Right. And it was further complicated <laughs> by the fact that she's the one who, like, kind of convinces him to go the two if by sea route. Yeah, well, yeah. Because he's like ready to fight on land, might win there. And she's like, no, 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 I got a bunch of ships. Like, we're just going to, we're going to get him. Right, but, but again, like, he could take the ships. He doesn't need to, like, like, if just because one boat turned around didn't mean Anthony turned, he, they're still under his orders. So, right. um, so yeah, so what happens is that it happens all over again. They, they try to do it again, and she turns around again, and he flies into a jealous rage and tells her he's going to kill her. So she's like, well there's only one way to get out of this, which is to fake my own death. And then he'll feel bad and realize like what is actually going on, that he actually loves me, that he's just mad right now. Um, and that'll be fine. But then she doesn't have like in true Shakespearean, like, you know, canon, she doesn't have the person like go quickly enough and he's already killed himself. So all those messengers. You know? <laughs> They're just messing everything up. I mean, it, it's a pretty, easy parallel to make to Romeo and Juliet. Definitely. Although they do get to have this one last hilarious conversation, which is wonderful. It's so mm -hmm. funny. It's one of the funniest parts of the play, actually, which is, <laughs> which is great because they're all dying and it's awesome. But <laughs> It's also a much, in terms of who they are as people, they're about as far removed from like 16-year-old lovers in some Italian town dealing with their family drama as you can get, because they're literally like deciding the fate of the world. These are, you know, top tier folks. And they're also fairly, you know, they're older, like Cleopatra's almost 40, Mark Antony's older than that. Like they're not scrappy teens, you know, doing no, their, and isn't that wonderful? their first love because thing. Shakespeare's like, uh, Shakespeare's like, love makes you nutso no matter how old you are. And no matter, <laughs> no matter who you're getting involved with these terrible decisions, you still can make these terrible decisions, which is which is awesome. It does elevate the action a lot um, in terms of like it's not just Romeo and Juliet and two families, right? It's Romeo and it's uh it's me and Cleopatra and like a uh, thousands and thousands of people in the crossfire. Yeah, armies everywhere. The end of the Roman Republic and the rise of the Roman Empire, all because of like and forth over their their sort of star-crossed love. Which yeah. is cool too, because Shakespeare basically has like these three plays named after dose lovers, which is like Romeo and Juliet, Charlius and Cressida, and then Antony and Cleopatra, which are written in that order. And in each one, the people involved get older and the stage gets broader, but they yeah. essentially deal with like the same kind of basic themes. And they're written over the course of like, you know, what, Romeo and Juliet was like 15, early 1590s, and Antony and Cleopatra's mid to late 1610s, so the course of maybe 15 years in his writing career, um, telling these three like stories set in different places at different times, but those key elements just sort of keep growing and growing and growing while the connection is these, you know, star-crossed lovers. Yeah, I love that trajectory because Romeo and Juliet is so... Uh so like young and naive and idealist and then Troilus and Cressida is awesome because Shakespeare was like well what if I have the woman like say like no I don't want to fall in love with you what I'd really rather have is wartime security 
and then Jonas <laughs> gets super mad. And that's how that She's one a woman is. after my own heart, I have yeah. to say. I'm super into her. Everyone hates Cressida. They're like, she betrayed Troilus. I'm like, or she didn't die during the war. Wow, weird. Um, <laughs> Crazy. And then, uh, and then Cleopatra is kind of like, uh, I don't know, an evolution of that. Because the reason she kills herself is not really related to Antony. I mean, it is a little bit. But I think that's what people give her like a lot of shit for like that she uh you know she they're like oh antony killed himself for cleopatra but she wouldn't kill himself herself for him and here's the evidence and i'm like doesn't that make her a more interesting character that she didn't want to die just for her lover but that she died so she wouldn't be conquered and led through the streets of rome by caesar like well and the extent to which she did die for him it's because she cares about how the two of them will be remembered she's throughout the entire play very dramatic but in the sense of being someone who is uh, like controlling her environment through the way that she acts and reacts to what's going on. And she's very consistently concerned with the story that she is presenting to other people. And in her own death, she is thinking and talking and reflecting on how she will be remembered. And there's this tension throughout the whole play between the reality of what's going on and the mythology that's already been built up about these now somewhat older characters. And then also through Cleopatra after Mark Antony is dead, her thoughts on how she will be remembered going forward. Mm -hmm. I think that Absolutely. tension and interest in storytelling and mythologizing is something about this play that I've always really appreciated and found interesting because it's such an, a, a big theme that runs through it that doesn't necessarily fit with the star-crossed lover plot, but comes in and out of both the politics and the love. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can't, you can't talk about this play without realizing how, um, how intertwined that relationship is with politics, absolutely. And what I think uh, is really interesting about the mythology in this play is that we don't see the typical figures that you would see um, when we talk about gods in Shakespeare. Usually you're seeing Juno and Iris and, um, you know, these gods that he brings in to have come say something. Uh, you know, they're talking about them and suddenly Juno's there to officiate a wedding, Raven you know? Ones who are just referenced, as in my favorite play, King Lear, when Lear is banishing people, he says, by Jupiter, this shall not be revoked. Right, right, exactly. So, um, so it's so the god that really appears most in this play, the the one that actually sort of has an appearance is Hercules. And so again, there's this reference to like this mythology and what does this mean? Um, so Hercules has this Hercules drums are underneath Antony before he goes to war. There's this great drum scene, and so that's kind of what we see. But I think it's because we do have these characters that are elevated to think of themselves as gods, right? And so if you had someone more powerful on the stage, that would kind of lessen their impact. And Hercules himself isn't quite a god. He's half god. He's yeah, a, he's a sure. god of stories that are told about him. Like there's the legends of Hercules and there's his great deeds and everything. But those are just incredible feats accomplished by someone who's, you know, caught between the world of mythology and man the same way that a lot of the characters in the play are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's interesting because in the in this passage you read, there's the the line, it were for me to throw my scepter at the injurious gods to tell them that this world did equal theirs till they had stolen our jewel. Um, which I feel like goes right to that perception that Cleopatra has that basically 
we were God level and our world was God level world. And then you ripped dang Anthony out or something. Um, <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's my Cleopatra impression, which is pretty horrible, but. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I think you're absolutely right about that. And, but she sees it. Like you see through that line that, she sees herself able to scold the gods, right? And yeah. that's not something a normal person thinks they can do in Shakespeare. So right. she's like, you know, it's absolutely my place to throw something at them and call right. them injurious. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and they're like nearby that with my my arm, I can toss my <laughs> scepter far enough that it goes to wherever the gods are. She's a, she really sees herself up there. Um, for sure. Um, I was the beginning. Yeah, go ahead. Jack. We're, we're given that elevation to for both Cleopatra and Antony early on in the play from different characters, where you have the soldiers talking about how just cool Antony was before he found Cleopatra and got all distracted. Like this dude could live on berries and horse pee and nothing else. Like out in the wilderness, he <laughs> is just the hardest dude. Don't even mess with him. And they're, and they're essentially elevating him. And there's all of these stories that are told about him that put him on another plane. And when you meet him, he's besotted with Cleopatra, makes a lot of questionable decisions, gets super wasted at a boat party. Like, <laughs> he's not a perfect dude. He's a human guy. But these stories about him make him into something else. And with Cleopatra, I wrote down the passage. I mean, it's fairly famous, but you've got Mark Antony's... Uh, lieutenant, his long-serving lieutenant, um, who says of Cleopatra, age cannot wither her nor custom stale, her infinite variety. Other women cloy, the appetites they feed, but she makes hungry where most she satisfies. Like that's not a description of a person. This is a singular, unique, mythic woman that he's come across who like, there's just no comparison. You've never even heard of something like this. And to have the two of them elevated that way and for us to spend the entire play wallowing in their humanness and frailties and like the massive destruction they kind of, you know, cause through all of these various misunderstandings, miscommunications drives home that like Cleopatra feels she's elevated to where she can throw a scepter at the gods. And we have also been trained through the play to understand that the reality she's living in when she's having that reaction is like the death of Antony, which came about through their humanness. Yeah, absolutely. Although I do think that um, when we're elevating either of them, what Cleopatra is up against um, in terms of how people speak about her is much, much tougher, right? Because Enobarbus, Eno yeah. um, who is the Mark Antony's lieutenant, is fascinated by her and he can't really deny that. And he's mad that he can't deny it because yeah. he hates her. <laughs> um, but he has like this, that passage and then the very famous one of her coming in on the barge, which actually is stolen straight from the source, which is Plutarch's lives, like mm -hmm. actually lifted. You, you have this fascination with her, but there's never, there's never like that her manipulation that her politics, that any of these things, none of them are compared to Antony in terms of a positive light, right? You're saying like, she's this snake woman who comes in and can manipulate people and is ruthless and all these things. Um, at this point in her life, historically, which, he, you know, Shakespeare would have known, um, she's 
married and killed, I think, two of her brothers and killed her sister. She also has like six kids. She's like really, really, really formidable in her in her sphere. But we don't really see that as much. We see um, this kind of exotic thing she's in charge of. And we see how devoted her followers are. That's kind of like the one place where we see her. Um, but we don't really see her followers insulting Anthony that much. We really see the reverse. So mm -hmm. there is this like weird, weird thing going on for her. So the fact that she like does carry herself and consider herself this way, I think is so feminist and awesome because she spends most of the play being told she's like a whore and that she's corrupted this perfect man, which as we know, isn't true. Um, right. And the number of bad decisions that Mark Antony makes compared to the number of times that Cleopatra is simply making like really great political moves is ridiculous. Yes, absolutely. And people even like there's at one point in the play, she wavers on she might betray Mark Antony to get out of something. And everyone's like, what a jerk. And you're like, but which one is stupider here? Which one is a better ruler of right. Egypt? And which one is really the queen of Egypt and is going to lose her entire kingdom? No one, like, everyone forgets that that's what's at stake for Cleopatra, not, like, a third of Rome, but, right. like, her entire kingdom and her entire dynasty is, is at stake there for her. What's interesting to me is that Cleopatra in the play is almost a decade older than historical Cleopatra was at this point, too. Yeah, for sure. And uh, that probably has to do with the age of the actor playing her at the time. Right. You know, like, I, well, people don't really know who played this character. So that's also the thing, because we know what we know that like young men played women. But can you imagine a 16 year old boy playing this role? Because I can't. <laughs> I can, but it makes it for a very different play. Well, she says that at the end of the play, she says when, when she's describing how Caesar would conquer her, she says, what, I'm going to be played by some squeaking boy in, in public theater? Like, as a whore? Sure. You're going to remember me as some squeaky boy being a whore? <laughs> right. Wow. And so there's this very meta joke about that. So some people are like, this means that a squeaking boy played her. I think it means that an older man played her and they were like making a joke about how they wouldn't have someone play her. But it's also funny because her handmaidens would have been played by squeaky boys. So that's hilarious. Right. <laughs> and also the, that's also where the line is about, you know, they're going to remember Anthony as a drunk. And of course we see him drink a lot in this play and make a bunch of bad decisions. And like, that's kind of <laughs> how he's being remembered. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, I love that you mentioned the boat party because that's like the best scene. They're all oh so good. And building off each other, and normally that would be like, you know, a couple of drunk dudes talking about Plato's Republic or something, but they're mm -hmm. actually running empires. And honestly, I've got a lot of sympathy for Octavius in that thing, where he's just like, Jesus Christ, yes. I'm going home. Like, <laughs> enough of this nonsense, you sots. Yeah, I can't <laughs> deal with it anymore. Cause like, what the hell, guys? His dealings with uh, Mark Antony make a lot of sense. Like, this dude's just not doing his job. He can't be part of the three people running things if he's not gonna do stuff and he's just gonna hang out with Cleopatra. Like, good for him. Glad he's happy with Cleopatra. You don't get to run a third of the empire if you're not interested in running a third of the empire. Right, and I mean, Octavius's movement move against Lepidus, that isn't even a bad political decision because three people shouldn't be running this together right that's stupid as hell and never going to work so in terms of the set the uh second half of this speech through her language is how we get how incomprehensible this death is for her 
Hard to understand. Yes, it's very hard to understand. <laughs> because um, we get a lot of metaphors, which, like, aren't all necessarily, like, the most um, complicated, I suppose, which I think is interesting. Like, they're pretty typical metaphors when you think about... Um, when you think about Antony, I guess, like we're comparing the world to a sty. So that's not that high-minded, right? It's like, this is a boil or a blister. And then we say the crown of the earth, the garland of the war, the soldier's pole. So all of those things are pretty typical language um, and that pretty much everyone describes Antony in those ways. But, um, but as we go along, I think we realize that she's saying, she's using these because she can't really figure out what language to use to describe her lover dying. It doesn't really exist. And I think the part that really gets at it is when she says, um, the odds is gone and there is nothing left remarkable beneath the visiting moon. Because, like, I think that acknowledges that she really wanted a co-player. You know, she didn't want just the lover. Their relationship is super combative. And, like, it's just the odds. Like, my reason for being alive, the thing that I'm hitting up against, the thing that kept me entertained, that could match me in intellect, all of this thing is gone. So there's nothing left for me in this entire world and anything the moon can touch in any phases of the moon. Ooh. Yeah. I also love in that moment um the way that the ling like the the sounds are working um so i love like the although you're right to point out that the metaphors are fairly conventional and that's a really good reading of it but the sounds are very tight like withered is the garland of the war you have the the uh er and the r and the or sounds um and then the soldier's pole you have the o and leveled now with men there's kind of the e and then the odds is gone, you have the ah sound. So there's a lot of assonance going on. And then when she's like about to faint, because uh, I think that's what happens in between the two yes. parts. Um, and she says, there is nothing left remarkable beneath the visiting moon. So it's it's nice that this, this sort of poetic uh, techniques drop away. There's not much, there's like a half rhyme maybe between gone and moon, but otherwise, um, the density of sound is gone and then she faints like in in the middle of a pentameter line so it's after beneath the visiting moon and then i think some other person like a handmaid maybe says like yeah her handmaid kind of wake her up and attend to her at that point yeah but that's such um, a good point i've kind of always wondered why that sounds so stark in contrast and you that's awesome yeah <laughs> no it was so beautiful and it's just like you're just like, whew, there's nothing. <laughs> not, not even good sounds anymore. <laughs> oh, my God. That's awesome. Yeah, and totally true. That's so good. Um, and the second half of this speech, I, I was thinking about just doing the first half because those are, like, my real favorite lines. But the second half, I think, is great because we do see why, I think, in this second half, why she is compared to Hamlet. Because I think the things that she's arguing are very, especially uh, the, the – there's a couple lines. One is, um, all's but not, patience is Scottish, and impatience does become a dog that's mad, then is it sin to rush into the secret house of death ere death come to us? That's so, like, that feels just lifted out of <laughs> Act Two of Hamlet. Um, to take arms against a sea of troubles? Right. Yeah. Is, is it a sin to do this? W would it be a sin to, do, to kill yourself? And, you know, would it be a sin to rush into a secret house of death? Um, and then 
the ending is Hamlet, pretty much. We have no friend but resolution and the briefest end. Um, you know, that's, we really see her character come to the decision that she's going to make there. And then for the whole of act five is her convincing herself to do the thing essentially. But yeah, but resolution and briefest end, those are both Hamlet. And I think argues for her to be in the tragic hero canon, like hugely. Absolutely. And she's ending on a nice couplet, rhyming couplet. So good. Um, that I was wondering what, like, for you two who know the play better, there's the moment where, um, like, after she says to rush into the secret house of death, ere death dare come to us, then she, like, totally pivots and goes, like, how do you women? And then tries, It's it seems like she's putting on, like, a political face or something for, like, preparing the funeral. But reading it and not knowing the play as well, it feels, like, very sudden to me um, and I was wondering what like how that's usually staged or how that's understood yeah so where the scene takes place is in a monument that she's hidden in um, for, to fake her own death and so in there in the monument with her are her two like primary followers Iris and Charmian and uh, one of whom dies when she dies out of grief so they're you know they're really important to her and so basically how this moment is usually played is you've got not only do you have the two handmaiden in the space with them, but you also have Antony's followers who have dragged him up this monument. It's usually pretty comical because, like, when you think about where this would have been done, it might have been done in a balcony at the Globe when they would have had to, like... <laughs> or, oh would, like, usually drag someone Right, exactly. It's usually pretty funny, actually. They, they usually play up the humor in, in getting him to Cleopatra. But what's usually <laughs> happened is her, so she faints, she wakes up, she has this sort of moment that feels more like a soliloquy that she's talking to the audience about. And then, um, you know, part of what I love about Cleopatra is she is, I think, a, a ruler who is very conscious of her followers and their emotional state. She cares very much about them in that way. And so usually what happens is she has this like trancey thing and she says, air death come to us. And then she looks around and she's realized she's totally freaking out her handmaidens and they're like sobbing. And she's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Are you all right? You know, and it's this, and then she notices that the guards, Antony's guards are distraught because they're, you know, he's just died. So it's kind of her seeing the people around her and kind of trying to take care of them um, briefly. So, and give them some sort of words of comfort, which is why I really like that, how at the end of it, she's kind of, she's doing two things with this line where she says, um, we'll bury him and then what's brave, what's noble, let's do it after the high Roman fashion and make, make death proud to take us, come away. This case of that huge spirit now is cold. So I think she's trying to she's trying to like appeal to the Roman soldiers that are there and say I'm going to kill myself in the high Roman fashion, which she actually doesn't. Um, and then she's trying to uh, her her women she knows are going to die probably because she's in the middle of a wartime you know <laughs> situation. And if she dies, they're going to be killed. So she's trying to bolster them and say we're going to make death proud to take us. We're going to die nobly. And then this case of that huge spirit, it's great because she's departed from metaphors there, right? She's really saying, this isn't Antony and nothing I can describe is really Antony anymore. This, this is just a case that held him and then I'm going to go meet his spirit somewhere. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's beautiful. Yeah. 
I love that in the second part, you see Cleopatra as a leader and you see her instinctual leadership and also the style of that leadership. And that what Shakespeare does, which is part of why he's a genius, is that he gives you her interiority where she's having this deep personal contemplation. But that is on the same level as her being aware of her surroundings and taking that awareness and dealing with it perfectly. Because you get the sense that she has intuitively, even though she's in this like deep, crazy emotional state, she just saw her love die. Like she's still able to find not just words for the people around her, but the right words and to tailor exactly the message that the two you know, fairly opposed audiences need to hear. It's there for her. She's so good at putting a face on uh, that she's able to do it. But what I think is really great and shows the brilliance of Cleopatra is that the face she puts on is still true to the internal monologue that we see brought out. She's yeah. still talking about death. She's still reflecting on the exact same stuff that she was having a personal conversation out loud for our benefit as viewers of the play. But the subject matter of her personal discussion is the exact same subject matter of what she sort of presents to these two audiences. It's just that in doing that, she's using different language that gives them a message they need to hear. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's something Shakespeare tapped into Cleopatra that you don't see as much in the original source. So I did a study of Cleopatra in Plutarch's lives. And, and, and the thing that he does is he does show her as this great leader, which she was. She knew like every language in Egypt at the time, which is like she knew like nine languages, didn't she? Yeah, it's yeah, some crazy number. She was she was a brilliant politician. She knew everything. She had an incredible mind. So I think you're absolutely right to point to this moment as like this is really like in her deepest grief. She still has this intelligence and this. Um, you know, this in supreme leadership thing going down. She knows exactly what to say to everybody to make them feel better and to bolster them for what's about to come, which is horrifying. Um, and she can take her emotions and her personal struggle and turn it into more effective rhetoric just without even thinking about it. Absolutely. She just does it. It's so she gets, brilliant. She gets totally nailed by scholarship for doing this in 5-2, I believe. There is a, there's a man that comes to her and he's not, Antony tells her to trust this soldier when he's dead. And it turns out that soldier is totally untrustworthy. So Mark and Antony continues to be super incompetent as oh, even, even in his afterlife, right? So, but she does find a, a, a more interesting, like a, a more sympathetic person um, in, in the Roman army. And she levels with him and she says, she has this whole speech about Antony and how much she loved him. And she does it in front of him. And then he's so moved by how much she loved him that he, does say, okay, I'll help you. And she says, tell me what Caesar's going to do to me. And he's like, he's going to lead you in triumph through Rome. And she's like, great, then I'm going to kill myself. That's, that's it. I'm not, I'm not letting myself be demeaned in that way. Um, but a lot of the time people criticize her for using her love for Antony and her grief in that moment to get political power. And I just don't see that happening um, see that critique of any man in Shakespeare in the same way, if that makes sense. They're like, oh, she's using her emotions to sway someone. I'm like, oh, like, <laughs> like you're Your supposed point is. to do. Right, exactly. Yeah, um, but she does that does. brilliantly. She's, she's, she's kind of scary. She's very scary like that. What does the word resolution mean in this context? Because when I first read it to the contemporary ear, 
it's it's like almost like an interesting redundancy where it's like we have no friend but resolution and i'm thinking about like the resolution of a piece or a play so some, like an end um and then the briefest end so i sort of hear it as the end and the end but i feel like that's probably not what it means in this context if i had to guess I've always read it as resolve. So similar, resolve. Okay. yes, similar to what Hamlet says, you know, if it is yet to come, it will be now, blah, 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 all that. And the rest is, you know, all of that. Um, I think it's a similar out for the scene. It's saying like the only good choice now is to follow this path that I've pinpointed. It's the, the only way to do this is to see this through to the end. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's what resolution means, but maybe, I don't know. What do you think, Jack? That's my read. No, I, that's, that's real good. Um, I don't know that I have a super different one. Um, I think even if it is taken in the, in the sense that Connor uh, was mentioning where it is sort of almost a redundancy, but I think resolution has a different meaning than just end because there are plenty of stories that end without a resolution. There's plenty of plays that end without an actual resolution. And for, Cleopatra to some extent in the truest sense of like bringing together um, and finding some sort of, I don't want to say closure, that feels like the wrong, it feels like a trivializing no, it's definitely word, closure. but it is kind of. And like for her to have closure and for there to be a certain kind of closure that's different from just an ending, there is an ending where she's paraded through Rome for right. her the resolution in that sense of the word, not the resolute sense, but in the sense of an ending or a, you know, finishing, that's a different kind of ending than just an ending. Mm. I really I like think, all of that reading. Like if we, I think it's all three of these things, right? That's why mm -hmm. it's, that's why Shakespeare's incredible. Cause I'm sure he didn't mean it in one way. <laughs> he meant He's it. He's the dude who puns on I for like five lines. <laughs> Yes. Damn genius. But <laughs> also we have to take resolution and the briefest end is like killing yourself. Right? Yeah. So like Yeah, basically when you, I need to die as soon as possible. <laughs> right. And so it's sort of like resolution contextualizing as a word, resolution is contextualizing what the briefest end means, which is that it means that I get to go out on my terms. I right. get to resolve this story the way I want it to be resolved. It's not just going to be ended for me in, you know, on someone else's terms or by someone else's rules. I get to resolve this. Right. Absolutely. And she totally does in like the most badass Egyptian way feasibly possible in this context. <laughs> I don't know if everybody knows how she dies, but she applies two snakes to death breasts and lets them poison her as she dies. She's the best. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty sick. And she had to like <laughs> smuggle them in too, which just makes it even more committed. Just like you know what, I'm going out by asp. Yeah, right. Exactly. She's not like, oh, I need a sword or something. She's like, no, I need snakes and my crown and my robe. Uh, that's her other amazing speech in this play, which is put on my crown or give me my robe. Put on my crown. I have immortal longings in me, and it's like her convincing herself that she is going to be immortal, so she's going to die. Um, in order to, and it's, wrong. it's also the yes, yeah, so true. And it'd be, it's also the only instance in the play, I believe, where she calls Antony husband. So there's this nice 
like closure yeah. piece for her there too, where she's finally like, well, in death, we're going to be one and finally we will be married and there won't be any politics and political marriage won't be on the table. It'll just be us and you're going to be my partner. So it's kind of nice. That is nice. And Octavius puts their graves next to each other. He's like, nobody's going between these two. <laughs> Don't yeah. even try it. Yeah, Octavius isn't even like a bad guy in the end, right? He's no, like, oh. he's like, you know, I, we had our disagreements, but in the end, you really liked each other, and you both killed yourselves, kind of, you know, I, I guess this is the good thing to do. I'm going to still take over Rome and, like, you know, I kind of screwed you <laughs> over. Definitely one at sea, no big deal. Major naval victory, score on Fractavius. Uh, so I guess you guys could be together for eternity and your love shall live on, whatever. Yeah, I've always read Octavius as just really being young, but also perhaps not understanding emotions particularly correctly. Because he's the one character in the play that doesn't get swept up in his emotions ever. You know, he's really very, like, strategic and his strategies actually work and um but he can't he you know his speech where he's talking about Antony and what a great man he was and how far he's fallen you realize he really idolizes this guy but he's missing this passionate part of Antony and just can't really wrap his head around it and I think it makes him very angry which is part of why he does what he does but it is nice that in the end he kind of understands at least enough to know that like these two had something that was you know, something he can't quite, something cosmic that he's never really going to, you know, get at, but that meant a lot. So that's good. Yeah. I like that a lot because it could be very easy for a character who idolized Antony for his, you know, initially present qualities to also find great value that in addition to being, you know, an incredible soldier, he's also capable of these world-changing feelings of love and affection. There's plenty of stories and there's plenty of literary and storytelling histories that really value, you know, the warrior poet or the knight who, you know, writes letters to his beloved and is, you know, in addition to being powerful on the field of battle, he is also dedicated in the, the arts. thing. The, right, dedicated to the arts, skilled in the, you know, ways of love. Uh, but that's just not Octavius's jam. That's not what he's about. Not at all. And he, I think he, he has a really hard time understanding it, which is like Octavius's little personal arc and tragedy is his personal hero. He's nothing like him. So that's really, mm -hmm. really, really tough for him too. And in fact, that's interesting because Octavius's main foray into love is strictly the use of it or not even love, but just like human coupling is I think how he would think about it is like to try and get Anthony with his sister to solidify the bond. And that's yeah. about it. Like other than that, we don't hear a lot of how Octavius thinks about relationships. No, they some there's a lot of productions that make him make it pretty obvious that he has an incestuous relationship with his sister. But I've never really read it like that. I mean, you, you can, it's an interpretation, but I, I think it gives Octavius a little bit too much credit in terms of like, I've always read him as pretty shut down in those areas. If um, we listen to the play, she's not the most desirable partner. Well, I think they just describe her as not as tall as Cleopatra. And to be fair, we do hear most of her description from a messenger. Oh, like, no, no, no. It's totally biased. But I'm just saying she's like homely and I believe explicitly is said to have quote unquote bad hair. Yeah. 
which is my favorite insult because it's so non-Shakespearean. <laughs> it's like yeah, but like she's Becky with the good it. hair. This <laughs> is like Octavia with the bad hair. Oh my god. Usually they play Octavia as being perfectly beautiful, but this messenger is under such duress that he starts making up shit about how awful she looks. So Cleopatra physically won't beat him because she yeah. does beat him when he's like, she looks okay. And she's like, ah! Are you kidding me right now? <laughs> I will beat that thought out of you. Whoa. There is Does no she... way she looks okay. She is a monstrosity, right? Right? Like, she she's is, short right? And she's got yeah, yeah, yeah. Terrible hair, totally homely, like tiny woman. You can totally crush her. Yes. You know, wide set eyes, awful brow, just the worst. Which is, I mean, I mean, I think if you look at it in terms of a traditional, uh, the traditional like Greek tragedy idea of everyone having their flaw, Cleopatra's is certainly insecurity, um, and that's like those scenes are great at illustrating how that insecurity manifests within a person of power, and it's also very funny. <laughs> yeah. We've ranged far from the selected text. Connor, you're usually good at keeping <laughs> keeping things straight on TV. Oh, uh, <laughs> a little more on point. Do you have other uh, specific items uh, you want to draw in the selected passage? I did a lot of scansion, and it was pretty solidly in iambic pentameter. Uh, some notes, which may not have any substance, is I feel like patience is Scottish is the only line that doesn't begin with an I am. I'm also really fascinated by that line. What does Scottish mean there? Because I looked up Scottish in the Oxford English Dictionary and found no indication it means anything other than like related to Scotland. In uh, No Fear Shakespeare, which is not reliable. <laughs> they, I'm tra so glad. they translate it as uh, foolish. In the um, Arden version of Shakespeare, which so, is reliable. Yeah, uh, the most reliable. Yes, they do agree with that, actually. They call it, but they say stupid. So is, I don't know if there was a perception of Scottish people. Yeah, that's, well, right, but this is my question, because that feels like an anachronism. Yeah. That's that's my main question, because like, it's pretty, in the text, my guess was that it meant not, I did not come up with foolish or stupid, but it was along those lines, like patience is a bad choice. Um, but why would he use the word Scottish there? Like, why would he put that in Cleopatra's mouth at this pivotal point? Because for me, when I'm reading through it, that's a word that takes me out of the emotions of the place. And I'm thinking about... Yeah, but it's what would put an Elizabethan audience in. That's the thing you have to like. They like this is not Cleopatra from Egypt saying this, right? This is the actor on stage at the Globe saying this to an English audience, and so I—that's my guess anyway. Would be it's there because it's like a nod to what people may have thought about Scotland at the time, or um, excellent point. Something like that. It sounds good too. Um, yeah, and yeah. Is Scottish. Yeah, yeah like, and, it, and there's the not alls, but not. So you have the ah sound, and then patience is Scottish. So you have the ought in the shh from the patients. So it's good. I mean, it's good. I mean, it's right. Yeah, he was right for sure. <laughs> uh, five out of five stars for, for William yeah. Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> Shakespeare, five out of five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm wondering, and now that I'm thinking about the Scottish thing more, James of Scotland would be on the throne at this point. So I'm wondering if he's sticking this in particularly because 
he's because we say all but not patience is Scottish and impatience does become a dog that's mad. So it's Cleopatra acknowledging that patience is usually a virtue. Um, so perhaps he's doing this to to reference their rulership as well. That's an excellent point. You're right. It does just sound good. Not Scott rhymes. <laughs> There's a lot of internal rhymes in this. Um, in the beginning, would die and then shall I abide, which in thy absence is no better than a sty. Well, I feel like chairs does the and does the meanest chairs. It were for me da 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 to tell them that this world did equal theirs. Ah, uh, good call. Mm, nice pull. Um, yeah, it was so. I was very. It was very interesting how many internal rhymes there were. Uh, I had forgotten that Shakespeare was tossing that in. I had somehow put it in my head that Emily Dickinson was like the first to come up with internal rhymes, which is like totally nonsense and wrong. She just like brought it back, made it cool <laughs> for Americans. Yeah, and she, she did most things first. So <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, yes, yeah. <laughs> That's true, though. I wonder what, like, doing more internal rhymes in this passage, what does that particularly do? That is a good question. Um, that is something I've been thinking about. I mean, so the end, the end of the speech is very conclusive in, like, a classical way with the rhyming couplet. We have no friend but resolution in the briefest end. Um, and then there are parts... The, the other part that's interesting about the first part with the beneath the visiting moon is that uh, the soldier's pole has fallen and, and the young boys and girls are level now with men. Those have um, the, like, like a caesura, so like a punctuation at around the same point that beneath the visiting moon does. So mm. like are level now with men, semicolon, the soldier's pole has fallen, colon. Um, so that sort of, I think, is being set up, which has that internal part. And then, and there is nothing left remarkable, has that enjambment, which leads in much easier into beneath the visiting moon. Um, and I don't know. I mean, it's a good point. It, the, I need to look at it more, but it, it feels like there's a real... There seems to be a pattern of the enjamming and the internal rhymes that propels the speech very quickly or something, um, but makes it one thing that I think you would have if there was lots of end rhyming is it would lack a certain kind of momentum unless it was like stately momentum in like a heroic couplet kind of way. Um, and so this binds it together, but keeps it like surging forward. In some that way. totally makes sense. That's awesome. It also yeah. adds more weight to when you actually get the end rhyme with the last couplet. It mm -hmm. feels like this whole speech has been building up to that. And the message of that last couplet really is the message of the speech. It's telling you where things are going to go from this point forward. And I think the internal rhymes, as you're saying, they bind everything together. They give it propulsion. And then the end rhymes just button it up for you. It's a very satisfying build to that sort of conclusion. I suppose that also goes along. I'm thinking about it now in terms of like, cause like this is really, this, this last section is her trying to come to some sort of decision, right? And so 
that right so thoughts are not necessarily clean cut and rhyming when you're in the middle of a, some sort of decisive turmoil mm -hmm. and then when we get to the end we really feel that closure of like okay this is the next thing to do right yeah that makes a lot of sense um, and it does give the sense of the swirling thoughts because so much happens i mean this is not a very long passage it would take maybe a minute or two on stage like depending on how much time is given to like dragging his body up and stuff um but it happens so quickly and like anthony dies she talks about her feelings of death she has to pivot and talk to these other folks about death and then come to a decision about what's going to happen like that's four huge things that all occur in like 20 lines 20 pretty short lines yeah absolutely and and those internal rhymes really do make it feel like one thing is rolling into the next into the next into the next which is neat. Yeah, yeah, and it does it in when it seems like most of the internal rhyme is happening when she's having her soliloquy moments, right? So it's kind of it's it's more mimicking some sort of hurried, terrified thought process. Good point. Good point. Yeah. And the ones where she's talking to her her servants and the the soldiers. Yeah, and that part slows down a lot. In part cuz I think it has to cuz she's has to address all of these people, but it's like, how do you women, then what, what good cheer, why, how now, Charmian, my noble girls, ah, women, women, look, the lamp is spent, it's out, it serves, take heart. I mean, it's just like, it's very choppy. I could just picture her going like, I'd say this word to you, this word to you, this word to you, mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, yeah, and then, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then eventually, she's like done that part and now she can like finish with a more uh regal type uh, Does... right and the um punctuation in that section too the how do you women what what good cheer how it's there's an exclamation points and and that's um you, what you have to remember is also is we, we weren't supposed to read these right so they're scripts and yeah. so that would give the actors clues to who when they're supposed to look at different people so that's absolutely real cool and that's exactly the sense I got in reading it, which I thought was really cool, is I could feel her physicality in those words because they are broken in so powerfully that you can feel her turning from one person to the next and it's not explicitly spelled out, you know, women, what, what? Cleopatra turns to face, you know, Handmaid One and then a couple lines, Cleopatra turns to face Roman, you know, person two or whatever, you know, it doesn't have to be spelled out for me to get the sense of that's what is happening because of how it's presented in the text. It's great. Sticking with the passage, I had, reading it over, I was struck by the number of times the words women and woman are used. Uh, and I thought that was interesting because the space that they're in is Cleopatra's space. There's a fairly even number of men and women in it, but the number of times she's calling out to her own folks, I mean, it makes sense because they're the ones she knows better, but just the repetition of woman, women, because she could very easily address the men almost as often, but the times that she's mentioning him or Lord, she's talking about Antony, and I think it's only the one time she says good sirs that she actually references the men in the room, and it makes the space feel even more like it's her space and the space of her and her handmaidens, and I really think that's kind of a neat construction, because as much as she is reaching out to, 
you know, the needs of the Romans in the room. And as much as she is connected to Antony and what's going on with him, it's her place and it's her space. And I think that by reiterating, you know, oh, see my women. And then, you know, even a woman commanded by such poor passion. And then she calls out to how do you women, you know, my noble girls, ah, women, women, look, like she's repeating that over and over again. And it gives just a sense of how much this is a place that belongs to her as a woman. Yeah, and she doesn't have any... The people who attend her are mostly women, and then she has one eunuch that attends her as well. She's like, the, her her uh, her kingdom is very women-centric, I guess. And Rome um, is pretty dude-heavy. Yeah, we only have Octavia in Rome. Right. That's, that's, that's a woman. Um, so, absolutely, I think that's... Uh, I actually just looked it up in the Shakespeare concordance because I was curious, and there's so many women and women in Antony and Cleopatra. <laughs> Nice. So, so that's clearly something he was trying to emphasize. I think um, that this, and and that's how I, I don't see how you could read this play as a non-feminist play as not having finally, finally after all this time, Shakespeare has a female tragic hero because he's interested in how to represent this person um, and her followers as real people and really tragic. Um, and not just as like a small piece of it, like even with Macbeth, Lady Macbeth, you could call her, but she's, you know, she's not really explored and that kind of a thing. So he's really giving Cleopatra her own space and agency and definitely emphasizing that with gender. It is really funny how many times it's repeated though, isn't it? It, yeah. it just, it comes over and over and over again and more and more as the passage goes on. Yeah, right. And Shakespeare could have wrote like, good sirs, sirs, or good sirs, good sirs, or like lots of, there, there is an opportunity to, to repeat that stuff, but he only, Shakespeare only writes, uh, women, women look, and uh, women, women come. And so he that, ends up saying either women or girls four times in the couple of lines that lead up to when she calls out to the Romans and she says, good sirs, one time. That's where it sort of gets the most condensed, where she says, how do you women? What, what, good cheer? And then it goes to, ah, women, women, look, our lamp is spent, it is out. Good sirs, take heart, like that whole section, it's like women over and over and over again. And also, I guess there's some Romans here, like we should probably think about how they're <laughs> feeling, whatever. But the focus, as it should be, like she's probably in this scene primarily concerned with how her handmaids are doing more so than Antony's dudes, much as she might be nice enough to throw them a bone and be like, oh, we'll bury him like a rum. It's going to be great. Like, but don't even worry that about she it. acknowledges his soldiers is very different than how um, Octavius Lepidus or Antony treats her followers. Right. Like no, nowhere in the play are they like, oh, how are her handmaidens feeling? Are you guys okay <laughs> with everything going on here? Like, no. No, not at all. So that, that she does is, again, another example of her being, you know, a leader to everybody in the room, no matter what room she's in. She's savage, but kind. I love her. She's complex. And just from, like, a narrative standpoint, she is as much as a protagonist as Antony is. I mean, their names are both in the play, so you could expect some kind of dual protagonist business going on. But in terms of who's, like, making active choices they both make a lot of active choices. She's not just buffeted from side to side by what's going on. Like she's suggesting, she's making decisions, she drives the action. You know, it sometimes, in fact, people who critique her for being a bad influence give her more credit than she needs on having certain kinds of agency. Because like she suggests that they fight on with their navies and that she like could supply 
ships. Yeah. Antony doesn't have to agree to that. Not at all. She just, she, she says like, I, this isn't, you know, I'm not, I'm not really a war general, but I got a lot of ships. <laughs> right. But the generals are advising him to fight on land where he's better. And yeah. she's like, well, if you, and he feels like he has to fight Octavius on the ocean because Octavius is like, yo, let's fight on the ocean. Right. And, it's really Antony making that decision. And, to, right. and, and her being like, well, I can help you out there. Right. He's being a boneheaded <laughs> dude bro who's like, well, he challenged me to ocean fights right. and I think that we need to have a water war. <laughs> right. He's responding to Octavius's challenge more than anything else. And then he's mm-hmm. mad and, and then he, he blames his fuck up on Cleopatra. And all she was doing is being supportive and is like, well, if you're really going to go ahead with this, I do have a lot of ships, if that's helpful. Yeah, and then when, surprise, when she's not, she's, since she's a woman and in this time period, she's done a lot of, uh, like, her violence that she's been a part of is very much um, how, uh, I guess it's more like hand-to-hand individual combat, right? Because right. she's poisoned people, um, she stabbed them. She's done a lot of that kind of violence. She's never done large scale war violence before. So the fact that she's, you know, scared of that is not inhuman at all. That's completely normal. She's not a seasoned war general like Antony is. Um, and then he just turns around and follows her because he's a numbskull. He would have had so much time while the ship was turning to like change his mind. Like it's not a like a quick turnaround. It's like, all right. Move the ship. That the ship's like our like I mean I've never thought about that before because on stage they usually do like a dumb show where they have your turnaround and he quickly follows her, but you're so right, that would take yeah. like an hour. It would take so long. I mean, he committed. He committed to leaving. That was, he was all in. Yeah. He was like, forget this. <laughs> Well, it's probably maybe he didn't want to fight, and he just wanted to blame it on Cleopatra too, right? Maybe That's that true. was like you know they've said many times his battle skills are waning because he's older and he's drunk a lot. So perhaps he was like, I might lose this. I don't really want to face Octavius at sea. Um, right. So we'll just blame it on. My girlfriend, that's cool, right? Yeah. So that's what's so interesting with criticism because women read this play and that's how they interpret these moments that are ambiguous. This, this play is so, you know, there's uh, a couple different ways to categorize Shakespeare plays. Um, and I'm sure you all know some of this, but I figure just for listeners. Um, Do it. We have uh, the, and the, when the first folio came out, which is the first compiled works of Shakespeare's plays that was put together by his fellow actors and people in his company. Um, they gave us three categories, which was which were tragedies, comedies, and histories. Um, and those have kind of evolved as we've gone on with Shakespeare scholarship because we realized that not all those plays fit neatly into these things. Um, and we have to categorize everything because, you know, everything has to have a label. Or otherwise, what's the point? Right, otherwise <laughs> it wouldn't be real or fun. So two, there are two additional categories in Shakespeare's scholarship now. There are the romances, which are the later comedies, which are not actually very funny like Cymbeline or The Winter's Tale or The Tempest. Um, and when we say romance, we mean more like fairy tale-esque than we mean traditional straightforward romance. Um, and then there are plays that are called the problem plays. And those plays are uh, plays that are less um, morally clear, I suppose. You're not really sure who's right. Um, you're not really sure who you're supposed to be rooting for. And you feel a lot of things for most of the characters. Um, and they pose problems that are not necessarily solved. So Antony and Cleopatra is categorized as a problem play for sure. 
um, along with um, Merchant of Venice and Measure for Measure and those kinds of plays. Um, they pose more problems than they pose actual tragic answers to things. There are less morals involved, I suppose. And I think that fits because with Antony and Cleopatra, um, I think all of the characters are pretty understandable, our big, three big leads. And I think, you know, we can get in all of their heads pretty equally. It's not like Othello, right, where we have Iago and we know what's going on in Othello and we know those two are, you know, whatever. Um, all three of these characters, we kind of get into their heads and understand where they're coming from, both in an emotional sense and then also in this overarching political sense. Um, yeah, and so I think it's so much more interesting to look at it like that instead of like a traditional, um, here's Antony and Cleopatra is his Iago, right? Like that's that's how people see this play more than Or his, more than or his Lady Macbeth to some extent. Yeah, absolutely. I've heard that reading too, which makes very little sense to me, but it's yeah, out because, there. Because Lady Macbeth is actually the far more human of the two. Everyone yeah. says that she's like this epitome of darkness and night and all this stuff and I'm like well which one of them goes crazy from killing people she does and she kills herself because she's killed one person and Macbeth just keeps on slaughtering people yeah. so <laughs> left right and damn center the yeah. guy can't stop I'm really upset that I got pegged yeah. as this <laughs> rancid murderer he's just out there stabbing it up I, I I would rather be Macbeth than the most traditional sexist woman character in any comedy though i have to say that's that's true i'm still yeah. so angry about that yeah that's... I have to stop watching the bachelorette i guess yeah <laughs> <laughs> you can't stop the bachelorette <laughs> they just have to yeah they just have to have a different answer that's like do you watch the bachelorette or do you watch the bachelorette ironically to read it through <laughs> a feminist Lens via racism, sexism, gender norms, etc. Right, but do you? But then there'd be a caveat. It's like, but do you also secretly want them, like, real people to fall in love? Like, in the in your tiniest, littlest part of your sacred, secret heart, are you hoping people get married? Problem solved. The Shakespeare quiz is faulty due to lack of specificity. So I'm just going to make my own quiz, and uh, how you watch The Bachelor is going to be one of the questions. You can, Good. yeah, because it should be a given that you watch it. I mean, you know, we're all. We're all watching The Bachelor yeah. You're all watching, right. I mean, we're all watching The Bachelor, everybody. Not Bachelor pad. I don't do Bachelor pad. Um, so do we have any other bits from this that we want to pull out? Or are we ready to read it again? I think we should read it again. Okay. <clears throat> Noblest of men would die. Hast thou no care of me? Shall I abide in this dull world, which in thy absence is no better than a sty? Oh, see, my women. Mark Antony dies. The crown of the earth doth melt. My lord, oh, withered is the garland of the war. The soldier's pole is fallen. Young boys and girls are level now with men. The odds is gone, and there is nothing left remarkable beneath the visiting moon. No more but even a woman, and commanded by such poor passion as the maid that milks and does the meanest chairs. It were for me to throw my scepter at the injurious gods to tell them that this world did equal theirs till they had stolen our jewel. Alls but not. Patience is Scottish, and impatience does become a dog that's mad. Then is it in sin to rush into the secret house of death ere death come to us? How do you women? What what good cheer? How now, Charmian? My noble girls, ah women, women, look, our lamp is spent, it's out. Good sirs, take heart. We'll bury him, and then what's brave, what's noble, let's do it after the high Roman fashion, and make death proud to take us. 
come away. This case of that huge spirit now is cold. Ah, women, women, come. We have no friend but resolution and the briefest end. That was a less clean reading, but oh well. Sounded good to me. That's good. There was a much deeper reading in light of our conversation. I felt like I got a lot more of what was going on. Um, yeah. A lot oh, more thoughts. I got really tripped up on patience is Scottish in my head. I was like, <laughs> there's so much in this line. <laughs> we've had that happen on a couple of podcasts where we've found lines that are just like, whoa, that don't yeah. necessarily look whoa at first passage. And then you're just like, what? Yeah. What's going and on? And the, the dog is another awesome. There's not Scottish in the dog. That's right. Oh, good call. They're all coming in. This has been a great episode of Close Talking. Thank you for a great conversation on the podcast. Molly's book out right now is called Saving Hamlet. Do yourself a favor and order at least five copies right now. Molly, where can people find you on the internet and what is your upcoming project? Thank you so much, Jack. Um, my, uh, my, you can find me on the internet at mollybooth.com, which has a link to my Twitter and, um, Facebook and Instagram and Tumblr, which I am still like really into, even though if no one else is. And my current project is, uh, called Nothing Happened. It's my second book, also from Disney Hyperion, and that comes out spring 2018. It's a YA adaptation of uh, Much Ado About Nothing that takes place at a summer camp where one of the main couples is queer. So it's, you know, lots of diversity and different takes on Shakespeare. I just finished it a second ago, like last week. <laughs> so, oh my God, congrats. Thank you. So I'm super excited about that. And in the meantime, I am working on some uh, more Shakespeare-related proposals for a new book. So that's very exciting. Wonderful. Thank you so oh. much for coming and talking with us. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I forgot one more thing. I'm so sorry. I'm very excited because um, this summer I'm launching my own podcast with my friend Cassidy. We are both uh, English MA candidates at UMass Boston, and we are uh, working on a podcast called It's Lit, which is um, us both getting tipsy and summarizing uh, like the classic uh, lit canon for high school and college so it's going to be pretty hilarious I think. oh my god that, that is... sounds so good yeah that's the best title of all time consider <laughs> me already subscribed so excited oh good i'm so glad but, uh, um, <laughs> yeah thank you for taking the time to guest on this humble podcast if you want to find more about close talking obviously you can subscribe on the itunes store you can find us on facebook at facebook.com slash close talking you can find us on Twitter at Close Talking. On Twitter, I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Hot Sauce Boxed. Uh, you can also send us an email, uh, close talking poetry at gmail.com. We'd love your thoughts on this conversation, any of the conversations we've had in the past, if you have thoughts on them, or if you have suggestions for poems or pieces of literature you'd like us to cover in the future, send them our way and we'll probably do it because we are always down to talk about some literature. So anyway, <laughs> thank you guys for a great conversation. Disney Hyperion author Molly Booth and MFA student and poet extraordinaire Connor Stratton. Connor McNamara Stratton. Sorry, drop the whole third of your name. Jack Rosser Mundley. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, guys. This was super fun. <laughs>